Sylvia. So if you're five-ish to ten-ish years old, you're going to be doing some crafts and learning more about Jesus. If you are not between those age brackets, then feel free to turn to Luke chapter 1. We have been jumping around the first couple chapters of Luke, and we've been seeing this interesting trend. This thing that is curious to my mind because it seems to be not the human way of going about sending a Messiah. So when we talk about Messiah, that's a word that was pretty political. That's a word that was pretty loaded. That was a word that was attributed to the emperor, to the leaders of the Roman Empire. That was, that was a designated title for the elite, for the powerful. So anytime Caesar or the emperor would come and deliver a people, it wasn't in this like, oh, I'm here to be your bud, and high five, good to see you. There was bloodshed. There was violence. To enter into a, a city housed by another king, where another king lived was an act of war, was a sign of aggression. But in the Gospels, we see that Jesus comes as a different sort of Messiah, and that his entrance to the planet is a different sort of entrance. We have talked about it over the past couple Sundays, the Sunday of hope, the Sunday of peace, and the Sunday of joy, that there's just some interesting things that led to Jesus' entrance and birth. The first couple things that were interesting would, would be how his cousin showed up. How angels came to speak to John the Baptist's father, Zechariah. And we were ta just talking about Zechariah and Elizabeth in the passage of Scripture. Zechariah was a priest. His job was to, to read the Torah, to teach and instruct the people of Israel on what God would have them hear from the Torah. And an angel from God comes and says, Guess what? Your wife's going to become pregnant and the son that she bears for you will be the one that paves the way for the Messiah. And Zachariah is to be like, that's so cool. He's like, nah, dude, she's old. <laughs> that's his response. I mean, he doesn't say it like that. That's Josiah's version of events. You can read it in Luke chapter 1 for yourself. It's not exactly what he says, but that's how, that's how I translate it. But what's interesting about that, two things come to mind. Zachariah's main profession is doing what I'm doing, talking. So suddenly God is proclaiming this fulfillment of these prophecies. We just read one, and we've been reading prophecies throughout the Advent season of the coming of a Messiah, of the coming of one that would go before the Messiah. All these prophecies would be fulfilled. So human logic would say that it would make a whole bunch of sense to, like, with trumpets and megaphones and a viral marketing campaign on social media with, like, the biggest star, like, tell the world, guess what? This is the guy that's preparing the way, and then this one following him, that's my son. Check it out. But instead, the guy that starts to hear about the stuff can't even talk. That's weird. It's kind of a weird thing to me. I don't, I just scratch my mind, like, God, you're God. I have lots of questions about the things that you do. But, like, the priest can't talk about a fulfillment of prophecy? That's like when you really want a priest to be able to talk. That's real weird to me. But then, not to mention Elizabeth being older, and as, I've, as I continue to hold my belief, if Zechariah happened to have Elizabeth with him with the angel, and the angel said, your wife is going to bear you a child, and he said, no, dude, she's old, she would have slapped him. <laughs> Absolutely would have. Excuse me, Zechariah? That's what would have happened, guaranteed. So from the start, it's just different. 
So Messiah, all these different attribute, uh, these things that are attributed to, to this deliverer, the Savior, the way that Jesus enters the world is just different. It's unique. Continuing on, Mary and Elizabeth, we see in this passage today, that's where we're going to pick up on the story. But to recap what we've already talked about during this Advent season, we have already gotten a glimpse of John the Baptist. We've already talked a little bit about this guy. And for many, he was this crazed man in the wilderness. He was out in the sticks, out in the desert, and he probably didn't smell good. And he didn't look the part of a priest. Priests dress really nice. They had all the accoutrements. I, I said a word on Wednesday night, phylacteries. Has anyone heard that word? It's my favorite word. Oh, my goodness. So the priests, the Jewish leaders, the spiritual leaders would actually show their holiness. It was literally a way of showing their holiness because it kind of turned into just an appearance thing. But the initial intent was they would take these leather boxes that had these lashings. And in these leather boxes would be these little pieces of scroll with different scripture written on it. And so they would wear them on their forehead. So if you've ever seen like this kind of black rectangular box on a, a rabbi's forehead, that's a phylactery. And so with it, there's all these like leather lashings that it's literally being bound to the scriptures. Like the scripture is part of who you are. You're living it out. But sometimes what would happen with the, the priests and the Pharisees was it was just all appearance based. So because of that and because of generic human understanding, you look at John the Baptist, he wasn't wearing any phylacteries. He also probably didn't bathe enough. He maybe had bad breath. And he was calling people children of snakes. It's like, well, that's an interesting way to pave the way for the Messiah. Weird. But still, people came and asked, okay, crazy man in the desert, you're the one that's ushering in the coming of the Messiah. How then are we supposed to live? And so last week we talked about generosity. John was telling these people that shouldn't have been a part of the story of Advent, shouldn't have been a part of the story of Christmas. He was telling selfish people to be selfless. He was telling greedy people, the tax collectors, the lowest of the low, to not be too greedy, to only collect what they actually need to collect, the bare minimum. And that's just the fact that he's talking to tax collectors and then also Roman troops is significant because those were people that were ostracized. Tax collectors were actual Jews that were working for the empire. So it was literally people that were working for your enemies, stealing in their minds from you to give to your enemies. Can you imagine the love loss that must have been present? If your next door neighbor was a, was a tax collector, that next door neighbor was always looking over their shoulder, worried about how angry they made their next door neighbors because they were taking from them to give to the Roman Empire. But then finally, the Roman troops are actually there, listening to this crazy guy in the wilderness, saying, okay, what are we supposed to do? And he essentially says, have integrity. You get paid a certain amount, so don't be oppressive. Don't go above and beyond your brutal calling that you can live a life that is generous, even in your station, that God could actually take you and do something with your life, that you can be enfolded into the story of Advent. That Advent is more than just four Sundays, a calendar full of chocolate. That it's more than a man, in, how many, more than red-suited, white-bearded, I don't want to ruin things for people. I think you know what I'm saying. Sometimes Advent, sometimes Christmas, sometimes for us, particularly in the Western world, it's a distracted time. Our focus is off. We see things like the scripture, we we read these things, and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but what's curious about it is that it works because God is making it happen, because God is in it. 
because with God, all things are possible. So, a little baby, vulnerable enough to be killed in a moment, came to be the deliverer, the Savior, the Messiah. Emmanuel, God with us. God incarnate, God in flesh. God entered into our darkness to light it up. That's interesting. But so much of the time, like any good belief system or any tradition, we sometimes add to it. And what we add isn't inherently bad. Christmas trees, there's nothing inherently wrong with having a tree with lights on it. There's nothing wrong with giving presents. There's nothing inherently wrong with any of the things that we we kind of add to the celebration of Christmas. But it becomes problematic for us when that is the focus. Just like with the phylacteries. It's such a fun, say it with me, phylacteries. If you go and try to look it up on Google, it starts with a PH. Like P-H-L-Y, it's just a crazy spelled word. You just do the Google voice thing. Phylacteries is better that way. You just like the, the Jewish priest leather box scripture thing is what you could also probably Google search if you really wanted to look it up. But so many times we get caught up in the seasonal things. And so oftentimes, as evidenced by numbers, we focus on things that maybe are a little askew from what Advent is, from what it means to anticipate the coming of a Savior the expectation of a gift, the fact that God entered into our darkness, into our mess, into our brokenness, and offers a way to bring us up out of it. That he wants to actively engage in our story and in our lives, if only we would welcome him to do so, and then live accordingly. See, it's much easier, it's much easier to get distracted with, uh, I'm sorry, it's November 22nd, you're not allowed to play Christmas music yet. That is, there's a law somewhere. You're not allowed to play Jingle Bells. After Thanksgiving, maybe you're allowed to do that. It's so much easier to be, Pastor, you forgot to hang up your Christmas lights. A couple of you have told me that. I didn't forget. I lost them. I literally don't know where they are. I completely tore my garage apart to to fit more tools and stuff in it. And the box that had all of my exterior lights is gone. I literally don't know where it is. It's kind of... I'm impressed with my ability to lose things, basically. Even more so, though, there, there are conversations being had across the world on Internet, on social media, about things like the date, December 25th. Many historians, many scholars would say that that's probably not the actual day Jesus was born. If we looked at a calendar year, maybe he was born in September. Some people say, oh, no, he was probably born in spring. There again, is that the point? Is that the focus? Is that the thing worth arguing over? Um, I'm going to say it. Santa, right? That's the other distraction. My daughter, oh, my Lanta, I need to tell you a story. It is a little one, it's a dicey story because we are those parents now. We've never told our children that Santa Claus comes down a chimney or anything, but we've told our children the story of St. Nick because St. Nick existed, and our, our children are vindictive when they feel betrayed. And Lily felt vindictive or something one day. And so we hear back after she went to preschool at Mountain View Preschool. So if you have kids over there, sorry if my child ruined everything for you. But the teacher said, um, your daughter said something in class today. I'm like, uh-oh, that's not a good way to start this. And this is my wife telling me this. I actually didn't get to hear all of this stuff. I just heard my wife telling me after the fact. I'm like, oh, that's embarrassing. I'm so happy I wasn't there. It's like, yeah, sorry. I love you, dear. But the big point of contention, because it's Christmas, and this is a huge deal, and this is the focus, right, was that Lily go, went around to all the other kids, 
Um, Santa's dead. <laughs> it's terrible. It's like, I'm that parent now. It's like, oh, your dad's the past. Oh, you're the Santa's dead girl. That's great. It's like she may be mixing up some people, right? Because St. Nicholas is actually not alive any longer. And she's mixed up that with, like, mall guy. And I'm like, oh, no. So then there's all these kids in her classroom that, yeah. <laughs> Anyways, that's all neither here nor there. That has become the focus, though. And it's evidenced by just simple things that are measurable. You can look it up, and I would challenge you to do so when you go home. You can look up how much we spend on Christmas. The number is astronomical. Just the money spent on advertisement, on gift giving, on marketing, on decorations. It is astronomical. You can also look up the numbers for January. How many people are suddenly in massive amounts of debt? And it just kind of it begs the question, what are we doing sometimes? There's absolutely nothing wrong with being generous and giving gifts. But the Bible talks about being in debt. It talks about being generous and giving to those that are needy. And when we as a country spend astronomical amounts of money in a month that is dedicated to worshiping this homeless Jewish carpenter, it seems a little interesting. It seems like maybe our focus can be off sometimes. The past couple weeks, we've talked about these things. Hope, peace, joy, and love. And it's intentional. Those are, those are things that are timeless. They've been celebrated and focused on for a long time. The church has focused on these things because these are the things that we believe the incarnation of Christ, God with us, is given over to us. That, that because there is the birth of a Messiah, we can have hope. That because this Messiah calls us to live in a different way, there is this opportunity for a, an interesting kind of peace that is maybe not the human understanding because peacemaking sometimes involves violence in human understandings. That, that there can be joy, not necessarily happiness. And like I talked about it last night, and if you're new this morning, it, you can boo me later or whatever. I'm a Cardinals fan, so sometimes I'm happy. But this football season, not so much. <laughs> happiness is very fleeting. But joy is this rest assurance, rest assurance that God enters into our story, that God is with us, that we can have this joy that is this internal, supernatural, and eternal sort of a thing, even though sometimes... I'm also happy the Cardinals are getting walloped. They're just terrible this year. I feel like I could do a better job of quarterback. But that's neither here nor there. <laughs> We're not to talk about the Seahawks. Anyways, <laughs> I always get myself in trouble. I shouldn't even say anything at all. Oh, my lanta. So then, <laughs> did you hear that, Jim? <laughs> I'm glad you were paying attention. So this morning... We're diving into Luke chapter 1 and understanding that on this Sunday of love, we are wrapping up the series of Advent, the series of expectation, of anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. And to set the stage, we find Mary with Elizabeth, these two women that are integral to the, to the story of Christmas, to the story of God incarnate in flesh and blood, to enter into our lives, to, to shine a light in a darkness to come for us that are broken so that we may be healed if we would only receive this gift. And these women are talking about how honored they feel to be a part of this. And then Mary basically bursts into the song praising God. Happy is she who believed that the Lord would fulfill the promises he made to her. And then in verse 
46, Mary, with all my heart, I glorify the Lord. She goes into this song. She just is praising God in verse 46. And she's telling this story that is basically the story of the Bible, the story of, of who God is and who he's trying to, to pull us out of our brokenness and darkness to be in relationship with him. So in verse, in verse 46, we pick up the story. Mary said, with all my heart, I glorify the Lord. In the depths of who I am, I rejoice in God, my Savior. He has looked with favor on the low status of his servant. Look, for now, from now on, everyone will consider me highly favored. Because the mighty one who has done great things for me, holy is his name. He shows mercy to everyone from one generation to the next who honors him as God. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered those with arrogant thoughts and proud inclinations. He has pulled the powerful down from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty-handed. He has come to aid his servant Israel, remembering his mercy, just as he promised to our ancestors, to Abraham, and to Abraham's descendants forever. And after this, it says, Mary stayed with Elizabeth about three months and then returned to her home. There's this interesting song where she's talking about all these things God has done, that there's this shared history for the Israelites, the, the people of God, that they have this story that she is becoming kind of the plot twist too. That the climax of the story is now unfolding, being grown in her womb. That the history of her people has been a history of struggling to be the people of God. Because to be the people of God, they entered into a covenant agreement. To understand fully what she's talking about, we would have to go all the way back. And if you, I didn't put this on the back of your bulletin, but you can write it down, Genesis 15 through 17. This is the, the initial covenantial, this is the first time that we see this sort of a language, and it's with this guy named Abraham. And what's interesting about Abraham is there's a parallel between him and Zechariah. God says, hey, guess what? You're going to be a father, and I'm going to bless people through your son. Like, my wife's old. Same sort of scenario. Sarah probably slapped him later. It doesn't say that in the Bible, but if there was a comedic version of the Bible, there'd be lots of guys getting slapped by their wives. It's true. Abraham, talking to God, God tells Abraham these amazing things. And what's curious about them is, is we read them so far past when they happened that we sometimes lose focus, just like with Advent. Abraham is called by God and says, guess what? I'm choosing you. From you and your wife, I'm going to bless the world. You're going to be the father of many nations. You're going to have these descendants. They're going to be more than the stars in the sky, the sand on the seashore. They're going to be a lot of people that call back to you. Well, that's why we see Abraham just littered through the Gospels in the New Testament. Abraham is a big deal because he's the source. He's the initial covenantal, hey, I'm going to do something new, something amazing. I'm going to bless the world through your descendants. I'm going to show the world how I want to engage with it by by using them as an example of how to live. And there's this revolutionary thing that happens. It's really interesting. Um, in Genesis 15, I believe it is, uh, Abraham cuts a whole bunch of stuff in half. And if you haven't read it, you can go back and read it. It's kind of weird. But 
21st century Americans, we don't make contracts with cutting animals in half. Uh, we were just in the office the other day. We had to have our building appraised. We're refinancing the mortgage. Me and Greg didn't have to cut animals in half. Greg is your treasurer, by the way. Um, we just had to sign a piece of paper. It was a little bit less bloody, and I could bring my children along with it. And like, hey, kids, we're cutting a cow in half, then we're going to cut a sheep in half, and then a goat in half, and then we're going to put some dead birds. And the way that covenants and contracts were made was you literally did that. You cut these animals as a sign of how serious you were taking this, the sacrifice you were willing to make, and then you would walk through the dead carcasses with the person you're making the contract with. So in this chapter, what, what happens is that this torch in this clay pot thing goes all by itself between the animals. It's this interesting imagery that basically God is saying, I'm going to make it all possible. I'm going to enable you. I'm going to give you the ability. I'm going to just tell you what to do, and you need to just follow my word and do it. It's actually going to be pretty easy. Just follow my lead. Fast forward in this story of the Bible and what Mary is kind of talking about, we see this guy named Moses. And maybe in the last half of Genesis, we see that God's people struggle to live up to the covenant already, that they maybe struggle with kind of being like the rest of the world, being selfish, cheating each other out of birthrights and all sorts of other questionable decision-making. And so the people of God find themselves in Egypt, exiled out of the land that God placed them in, and they're under oppressors. So this guy named Moses, who becomes a savior for the people of Israel, much like we see in Christ, is born, thrown in a river, and raised in Pharaoh's palace. And then eventually, because God and amazing things that happened, is able to deliver his people from the clutches of the Egyptians. And what's peculiar about this is these people lived under the oppressive rule of the Egyptians, built all these fancy things, were basically indentured servants and slaves. And then, after they're out of Egypt, they start complaining about stuff so quick, so fast. It just makes me, I mean, I get it. As soon as we leave the house in five minutes, our kids are, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty. How long is it going to be till we get there? And that's how I imagine the Israelites being to Moses. Are we there yet, Moses? Seriously, what's going on? It was better in Egypt. I, I'm, I'm tired of walking. I have bunions. My heels hurt really bad. This is a bummer. I, I don't have fresh water. My clothes are dusty. And they just complain and whine. But that's not the point of why I'm bringing up Moses. What happens is that the actual covenant agreement between God and his people are penned out. There is actual in terms and conditions, if you want to call it that. God makes it abundantly clear what he expects of his people. And many times, as Gentiles... As Americans, we gloss over books like Leviticus and Deuteronomy because, man, are they hard to read straight through. It's, it's fair. It's like reading terms. No, who actually reads terms and conditions when they check the box on the thing? No one. Don't even pretend like you do. But you're entering into a covenantal agreement. You, all, you read them all? Every last bit of it? Mm -mm. Uh, okay. I'll believe you, I guess. What's curious about this covenantal agreement, though, and the story of Abraham and a God who decided to come down to enable his people to be who he wants them to be is that this was revolutionary. For the first time in human history, you could know where you stood with your creator. That there was actually all these things that were laid out. Hey, if you do this, 
Do that and you're good. Like, we're good with each other. Consider the ancients of the day. They would offer sacrifices to appease the gods because the general consensus all the time was, God's mad at me. What did I do wrong this time? So let's kill another thing. Let's throw another virgin in the volcano. Let's kill another cow. I mean, God must be mad. The lightning just struck my tree and caught it on fire, so God's mad at me. They would just be seeing God's wrath and anger, whatever God they believed in, and they never really understood what it meant to actually be in a relationship with their creator. Instead, they were always in fear, concerned about what they did wrong, and just throwing sacrifices here and there, and special dances and rituals to hopefully appease the gods. We hear it referenced in movies and culture all the time, but that was a reality. So for the first time, this revolutionary document, or whatever you want to call it, is drafted where people could actually understand what it meant to be in a relationship with their creator. And that was revolutionary. And that these people, should they live up to their covenantal agreement, could be used by God to show God's love and mercy to all the nations. But we know the story. The people complained too much, and Moses said, I'm going to turn this caravan around. But instead, they just wandered in the desert for 40 years and were very cranky. Fast forward a couple generations, and we see God's people continuing to struggle to be God's people. We see the era of judges, where they're surrounded on all sides by people that are living in the land that God had promised. But since they took a 40-year detour, guess what? The neighbors moved in. Then eventually we see prophets enter into the story. We see this guy named Samuel, and the people of God, the Israelites, are saying, Hey, Samuel, you know what? I know God's supposed to be our king and stuff, but the Philistines have a king, and it seems pretty cool, man. And they're really peer pressuring us. Like, we need to have a king. We're not as cool as them. And so they say, Hey, Samuel, we need a king. And Samuel is all offended and talks to God about it. And God says, Don't be offended. The offense is mine. They're choosing human kingship instead of my kingship. And then the story continues in the Old Testament. Eventually, they have human kings, and they're becoming just like everybody else instead of what God had called them to do from the very beginning, an example of what it means to be in a relationship with God, to live differently than the rest of the world. God still tries, though, to bring them back. He sends them prophets. And these prophets, and it's so backwards, it's crazy, are sometimes the most ostracized human beings around. There's the story, you should read it, it's about a guy named Elijah. He goes and he proves God exists with the most ultimate of cook-offs. If you like watching like Gordon Ramsay cook-offs or whatever, that's what happens in the Old Testament. He's like, I'm going to prove God exists, watch. And then fire from heaven comes and laps up water and stone and meat. It's the craziest barbecue ever. And then the celebration afterwards is incredibly violent. Because a lot of people died. All the prophets of Baal are just, nope, you're done. Your God's not real. His reward is to run for his life. He proved God existed, and humanity said, uh, but Baal was more fun. You're going to die. So through this entire story of the Old Testament, leading up to this moment with Mary, we have the story of a God who is trying to offer us opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to be in right relationship with him. To be brought up out of our brokenness. To live a holy and righteous life. 
And we read in some of our scripture this morning, we read prophecies of one who would come and be the ultimate solution to the problem of humans being selfish and stubborn. The ultimate solution to the problem of no matter what, humans couldn't live up to the covenantal agreement, the terms and conditions. So God, in his infinite love and mercy and grace, decided to once again provide a solution to fix the problem. This Sunday is a Sunday of love because that is what the story of the Bible is. The story of the Bible is a story of a God who loves us so much that he never gives up on us. He should have. We're annoying. We're super stubborn. We don't listen. We say, yeah, I believe in God, but then we don't even read what he says to us. We don't talk to him. It's just an appearance thing sometimes. We take some of the most sacred holidays and we turn it into arguments over things that don't matter. Uh, I'm sorry, but you have to wear red and green to my Christmas party. Uh, You're not allowed to have eggnog in this house. Uh, I'm sorry, we don't listen to Christmas music until December 1st. I don't care if it's Thanksgiving or not. We turn it into the thing that we read over and over again in the story of God trying to say, guys, no, don't do that, do this. And then we continue doing that instead of this. In this, in this passage, in Luke chapter 1, we see this innocent, virtuous woman who is saying, I'm simply honored. I am simply honored to play part. And I will do anything and everything I am called to do to usher in the coming of a Messiah, of a Christ, that I'm going to live out Advent, this anticipation of this amazing gift. And then we see that gift turn into a man and then talk more about this love of the story of the Bible of who God is and who he wants us to be because he loves us so desperately much. We hear Jesus, his son, challenged at every turn because guess what? The humans still didn't get it. Like, uh, you're not Messiah. You look weird. Where's your army and stuff? Now, I didn't like how you said that. It made me look bad. The Pharisees, the religious elite, they didn't like it. Challenging him, trying to catch him in traps, asking him what's the most important of those rules. Remember the terms and agreements that we made? Did you even read them all? What's the most important one? And his answer is simple. Well, what you tell me. Love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It all comes back to love. And that's echoed in the New Testament. That, that these remain faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Luke, the Gospels in general, they tell a story of the coming of the Messiah, of the incarnation of love, of God who was willing to take on human form, to suffer, to experience the brokenness and the darkness of an existence on this planet because he loved us. What a gift that is for all of us to receive. The question, though, is what does it mean to to receive this gift, to receive the gift of, of Emmanuel, God with us? What does it mean to worship a Savior, someone who redeems us, who brings us out of darkness with his light, who offers to remove us from the brokenness, to make us whole, to make us holy and righteous? 
What is our response, church? Because guess what? It's, it's really easy to go home and make Christmas little more than decorations, than festivities, than doing the things that we do once a year because it's fun. It's easy to make it about a gift exchange and little more. It's easy to get distracted with the way the world would have us do things, but it's, it's a little more difficult to be intentional, to understand that the question we must ask ourselves every year around this time of the year is, can Christmas still change the world? Because what we believe at the core of Christianity, at the core of our faith, is that Christmas is a celebration of a world transformation. That God made it so easy for not just the Israelites, but everyone to be saved. To be adopted into the family of God, to call God Father, to have a relationship with our Creator. That is world-changing. So the question for us remains is, is it still changing the world? Is God's grace sufficient? What does it mean to live into the incarnated Christ? To ask those questions, we have to grapple with the reality of the brokenness and the darkness of this world. And if we trust and believe that this light can outshine the darkness, that with the light the darkness retreats, that that God is this great physician, that our brokenness can be healed, then our answer to that question, can Christmas still change the world, is born out of how we live. Not just the things we say we believe, but the things we do because of what we believe. There's something I shared online this morning, and it's something that it kind of hurt me. This is picture, and I'm going to tell you about it, because it's interesting how much it has to do with Advent. This is a picture of a journalist, uh, or of a Syrian girl that a journalist asked to try and smile. And it's recent. And this person that shared this is a pastor, and I'm just going to read what they wrote because their words were, were perfect. He says, hers is the face of Advent. The face of promises not yet kept or hope not yet realized. She knows the deep pain of the world up close and personal. Yet she is trying, trying to keep it together, to not give up completely, to hold on. This is why we need a season like Advent. We need to honestly acknowledge the pain of the world before we start celebrating anything. The Western church is in danger of softening Advent to the point that it's merely an early part of a great Christmas festival. But there is no need to avoid the truth about our world and what we've devastatingly done to it. We have a place to take that suffering. We have a place to take our own part in contributing to that suffering. In Advent, we take it to God. And we trust that something will be done. And so we wait. We anticipate. We do Advent. It would be very easy to turn this picture of this sweet girl into a conversation about world politics, foreign affairs, into pros and cons of various leaders and what they did or did not do. But what this picture is and what this pastor was trying to say is that hers is the face of Advent. The reason why we anticipate anything is because we need that gift, that God came in the form of human flesh to do something about the brokenness of this world, that we have a place to take that brokenness because God can do something with it. So we do 
Advent, hers, is the face of Advent. So my question for you today, church, are you doing Advent? Are you letting God's love beautifully wreck you, wonderfully make you and wholly transform you to do good, to do the work that he has called you to do in the relationship he has called you to have with him that he enables you to do? Are you entering into the story that he draws Mary and Elizabeth and Zachariah and John and all these other people to participate in, to do something about our world, to understand that our God cares enough to enter into the drama, to enter into the carnage, to enter into the suffering, because God cares. And he enables us to do something about it. Or would we rather make it really nice and really surface level and shiny and sparkly? The story of Advent is the story of a gift in the form of a human baby, the Son of God, who wanted to enter into this mess to draw us out of it. The question remains for us, that changed the world, but does it still actively continue to change the world? What is our response? How are we anticipating this gift? And how are we living into the truth of the incarnated Christ? What does it mean for us to live a life that honors that gift, that lives in that right relationship with God, that follows what he calls us to do, that takes up the challenge of love, of what it means for a God to enter into our mess and chaos, to offer to do something about it. Let's pray, church. God, sometimes we would like to sugarcoat things, Sometimes we would even like to, to turn it into an argument about something else because it's a little easier. Something more distracting, something, something more festive. But God, as we see in your word, you've called people that were unlikely based on human understanding into the story of Advent, into this amazing drama unfolding of a God who cares enough about us to try time and time and time again to draw his creation, his children back to him, despite repeated rebellions against, despite multiple times where we as a human race have decided to go against your will, to run from you. You continue to pursue. You continue to pour out grace and mercy, even though sometimes we don't get it or it looks weird to us. God, this story of Advent is the story of an all-powerful being who didn't have to do something silly in human understanding, something silly like being vulnerable and entering into the wreckage. That you could have been an impersonal God watching from afar, but instead you chose to draw close. That in the darkness of our lives, you brought light. In the brokenness, you brought healing. In the chaos, you give us peace. In our desperation, you give us hope. In our sadness, you offer joy. And in our fear, 
you show us what love is. This morning, God, we celebrate what Advent means to look to that gift, to anticipate the celebration that at a point in history you decided to pay the ultimate price because of how much you love us. That today we benefit from having a Savior who time and time again loves us so much and freely offers that grace and mercy in ways that we could never deserve. But that time and time again, despite our human ways, our sinful, rebellious nature, you wait with open arms to receive us back once again. God, would you show us what it means to truly celebrate, to not let Christmas be just a date on a calendar, but to be a way of life that you call us to live, call us to be, call us to see the world in ways that aren't normal, that don't make sense with a human understanding, but that have a supernatural influence on them. Would we celebrate this gift with our lives and answer the question, can Christmas still change the world by how we live into the incarnated Christ? We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. As we close, we're going to close with a song of celebration, a song that talks about Jesus 